Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. Lincoln Park and I had 44 rejections. Imagine being told 44 times you're not good enough, that this has been done before, that you're not a star. It's torture. Jeff Blue. One sunny Los Angeles morning in 1991, a 22-year-old stood in front of the mirror and picked an outfit for the biggest meeting of his life. His name was Jeff Blue. He was a law student by day and struggling drummer-slash-songwriter by night. And that morning, he'd weaseled his way into a meeting at one of the top music labels in the country, Geffen Records. 
Geffen Records, founded by none other than industry titan David Geffen, boasted intimidating clientele like Aerosmith, Elton John, Joni Mitchell, and Guns N' Roses. Blue stepped up to the label's giant double doors off Sunset Boulevard, when suddenly a man burst out of them, bumping straight into him. As Blue tells the story in his book, the man had long, flowing hair almost down to his ripped Levi's. He turned to Blue and said, Nice tie, before jumping into his illegally parked Ferrari. That man was Axel Rose. Blue couldn't believe it. As the rock star drove off, he looked down at his outfit and started rethinking its cool factor. One pair of khaki pants, one flowery tie, and one single dangly earring. He was way out of place. He sat down in the waiting area. Then, out of nowhere, appeared a 20-something guy wearing a flannel shirt and a thousand kilowatt smile. He walked straight up to Blue, extended his hand, then said, I'm Craig, and you can ditch that day job soon, buddy. And he led Blue to his office. Blue didn't know what to think. As he sat down on Craig's lush office sofa, he could feel the history of the rock stars who'd warmed that very seat before him. He knew exactly which ones, too, because their photos hung framed across the walls, next to Platinum Records. Craig then cut to the chase. He told Blue he loved his band, and in particular, his songwriting. He said, look, I'm sure you have a lot of opportunities to sign with all the majors, but Geffen is the most artist-friendly label around. He opened a cabinet and pulled out a stack of assorted Geffen CDs, then started handing them to Blue. He said, soon, your plaques will be up on these walls, your CDs in this cabinet. I want to sign you to Geffen Records. Blue dropped the stack of CDs all over the floor. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. For the very first time, someone was taking his dreams of being a rock star seriously. This never happened in the music industry. Somehow, someone had plucked him out of total obscurity. For once, he was on the right track. For the next five minutes, he says he listened as Craig filled his 22-year-old mind with starry visions of private jets, recording sessions, and world tours. Then Craig said, I was blown away by your show at the Whiskey last week. But that was odd, because Blue's band had never played at the Whiskey. It wasn't for lack of trying. They'd been begging for a slot there for months. So Blue told Craig they'd never actually made the list. But hopefully, with this new record label, Geffen could help them secure a spot. A deafening silence fell across the room. In a matter of seconds, Craig's eyes went from squinty and confused to huge and horrified. He covered his face with his hands, then said, I'm so sorry, man. I thought you were someone else. As Blue sat there, stunned, the couch underneath him no longer felt so lush, and he says he was unable to move. Craig, on the other hand, couldn't get Blue out of his office fast enough. 
that thousand-kilowatt smile was long gone, replaced with pure anxiety and shaky hands. Blue came, too, from his days and felt the need to clarify. So, there's no record deal? Craig said no, more emphatically and assertively than Blue had ever heard it uttered before. And he'd heard it a lot. But before he left the room, he asked a flustered Craig what exactly he did for a living. Craig told him he did A&R, or Artists in Repertoire, meaning he listened to demos and went to see up-and-coming bands. The ones he believed in, he'd try and sign to the label. To Blue, that information was almost as shocking as the momentary record deal that had preceded it. He had no idea people listened to music for a living. That while he spent his nights in the law school library, there were people like Craig getting paid to go to bars and scout new and interesting talent. It sounded like a fascinating career. So Blue threw a Hail Mary pass. He said, Can I be your intern? The question was followed by another emphatic no. But perhaps out of sheer guilt, Craig told Blue he was speaking on a panel later that night at a UCLA communications class if he wanted to stop by and learn more about the business. Well, exactly three hours later, Blue did just that. He snuck into Craig's panel and found a seat in the back row. And as he listened to the industry experts discuss the world of artists and repertoire, Blue says suddenly law school felt like a small town he couldn't wait to escape. He says his pulse quickened, his vision seemed more vibrant, his thoughts had more meaning. He hadn't felt this kind of rush since he sat down at his very first drum kit. But it was decided. He would put down his sticks and become an A&R executive. Because he was already close to completing law school, Blue decided to go ahead and take the bar exam. He passed, but he knew he'd never use his new degree. Instead, he got a job interning at RCA and Rhino Records and working in the mailrooms of Sony and Virgin. It was all about proximity. But as soon as Blue tried applying for entry-level positions, he was turned down immediately. He asked every single executive whose phone number he could find to be their assistant, figuring it to be the springboard to a real A&R job. But he was rejected by every single one. The reason? While a law degree is integral if you want to be a lawyer, to music executives, lawyer types were notoriously uncreative. And on top of that, Blue had a sort of palpable ambition that made middle management nervous. They said, you're the type of person who would take my job. Then one day, after being ushered out yet another room, he noticed something on one of those executives' desks, a stack of music magazines. So Blue grabbed a handful and started flipping through the pages. Inside were reviews of up-and-coming bands, and those reviews served as a compass for A&R people at fancy labels. And that's when it hit him. If he couldn't get a job at a label, maybe he could get hired as a music journalist. That way, he could become an invaluable resource to label executives, and maybe, just maybe, 
earn himself a job offer. So Blue started calling magazines, but each and every one rejected him. They said they weren't going to hire someone with zero journalism experience. Eventually, he ran out of publications to call, so he decided to make his way back to the start of the list and begin calling each magazine that had already rejected him a second time. He dialed the first one, and this time, there was an unfamiliar voice on the line. As it turned out, there had been a changing of the guard since he last called, and a brand new editor had just taken her post. She said to Blue, Hi, are you one of our new writers? So he said, yes. And off he went on his first assignment to review an up-and-coming band playing the Troubadour that night. Blue had never written an article in his life. But his very first piece critiquing a new group headlining the Troubadour got a rave review from his editor. And soon, he was assigned to cover a new gig every night. He says it paid about $10 an article, and that had to cover his own parking, gas, and drinks. But Blue says it was the ultimate education. He later told Forbes it taught him how to analyze music, musicianship, star power, what made a great song. And it forced him to distill all of that information into something digestible. Soon, he became a top writer in the field, contributing to Billboard, Music Connection, and Hits magazines. And bands started calling, requesting Blue specifically to review their new music. He says... Though he loved every second of it, it was still a means to an end. His ultimate dream could be summed up in two letters, A and R. Once he'd amassed a solid chunk of articles, he put them into a book to send to labels. He got hold of what's known as the Yellow Pages of Rock. Basically, a music industry directory with the listings of 30,000 labels, managers, distributors, publishers, and more. So he made his way down the list. The A's rejected him. The B's rejected him. The C's rejected him. The D's told him he needed actual A&R experience. The G's told him he was too highly educated. The R's told him he should probably just take lawyer off his resume. And soon, Blue had been rejected by labels under all 26 letters of the alphabet. Then the phone rang. A publishing company called Zomba Music was on the line. The very last one on the list. They were the only company willing to give Blue a shot. So they invited him to their office for an interview in New York City. When Blue arrived at Zomba's offices, he was seated across the desk from the label's president, who started immediately grilling him about which artists he would hypothetically sign. It was an easy question for Blue. He'd just written in-depth articles about every up-and-coming act on the West Coast, He knew which lesser-known groups had the potential to be global phenomena. But when he presented the president with his list, he was completely underwhelmed. 
He'd never heard of any of the acts. None of them were on the Billboard Top 10. What about Pearl Jam or Nirvana? But Blue felt like a monkey could just pick from a Top 10 list. The goal was spotting talent before they reached the Top 10. But the president had heard enough. He told Blue none of those artists would ever make the company money. He was clearly too inexperienced for the job. And he escorted Blue out of his office. Blue says he walked back onto the busy New York sidewalk completely heartbroken. But the next morning, before flying home, Blue decided he wasn't willing to go down without a fight. He had only one dream and one last shot. After all, Zomba was the only company in the entire Yellow Pages of Rock that was willing to speak to him. So before checking out of his hotel, he, once again, threw a Hail Mary. Blue marched back to Zomba and back to the president's office, and he made his closing argument. He said, I'm going to make somebody a ton of money someday, and you're making a big mistake if you let me walk out of this office. The president let him walk out of the office. Rejected and embarrassed, Blue hopped a flight home to L.A. Back in Los Angeles, Blue was back to the same old routine. Writing reviews all day and squeezing into the city's hottest music clubs all night. The Roxy, the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Starwood, and the Troubadour. Listening to bands just as desperate as he was to break into the business. Then, three months after his failed trip to New York, he got a message on his Nokia flip phone. It was the president of Zomba Music Publishing. Over the last three months, the unknown artists Blue said he would hypothetically sign at his job interview started gaining traction and turning the heads of major publishers across the country. Interesting. So, right then and there, the very executive that let Blue walk out of his office was suddenly offering him an office of his very own he would become a manager of creative at Zomba's L.A. headquarters. Now, a publisher is different from A&R. A&R executives scout talent, then oversee the artistic development and marketing of their artists, acting as a liaison between artist and label. Music publishers, on the other hand, ensure that songwriters receive royalties for their songs, and also work to generate opportunities for those songs to be performed and reproduced. So, this wasn't exactly his dream job, but he was paying his rent and paying his dues. And boy, did he ever. It would be in that very office that Blue would sign some of his first official acts, Limp Biscuit, Corn, and Macy Gray mammoth artists that would reportedly go on to sell over a hundred million albums worldwide between the three. Blue was on a roll, and suddenly he realized he needed an intern. We'll be right back. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. 
We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. At this point, it was 1997. Six years had passed since young Jeff Blue had snuck into Craig the A&R guy's UCLA panel. And tonight, in a full circle moment, Blue was back in that very classroom. Only this time, he was the guest lecturer. His friends and co-workers couldn't believe he was going. Because that same night was a VIP-only Interscope Records party that included appearances by Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and music legend Jimmy Iovine. Plus, free sushi and an open bar. But Blue needed an intern. Someone driven and insightful, with an unrelenting passion to create something special. And a room full of hungry industry hopefuls would be the perfect place to leave a few business cards. As Blue stepped up to the podium, he started by answering the obvious question. What exactly did he do for a living? He explained it like this. You know when you see a photo of your favorite band, champagne corks flying in the air while they're holding platinum records? there's always one out-of-focus guy peering over their heads. He said, that guy is me. That's when a curly-haired kid in the front row raised his hand. He asked, 
Aside from the obvious hard work, what else is required to make it in the music business? Blue's answer was succinct. Someone who seizes every opportunity possible. Then Blue walked over to the PA system and played a rough demo cassette of a Macy Gray song, and he asked the class to critique it. When the song ended, there were a few seconds of silence. Then the curly-haired kid spoke up again, this time without raising his hand. He said, It's not really my style of music, but I like her old-school flow and the minimalist beat. Seems natural, like she's not trying to impress anyone. She has her own sound. I don't know if I like the song or her voice, but it's memorable. Blue asked for the outspoken kid's name. He said, I'm Brad. After his lecture at UCLA, Blue left behind his stack of business cards for prospective interns. Though, he wasn't so convinced anything would come of it. Most of the interest he got after class was from students looking to check a box for extra school credit. So he decided to head to the Interscope party. The next morning, he stumbled into the office feeling a little off from the free sushi open bar combo. Coffee in hand, he beelined it to his office, eager to close the door behind him and enjoy a much-needed moment of silence. But as he stepped into the room, he saw something completely unexpected. A mass of curly brown hair poking out from the top of his desk chair. Blue said, Who are you? And he says the mop of hair jumped up out of his swively chair and walked toward Blue to shake his hand. He said, I'm Brad Delson. I was at your lecture last night. Delson declared his intentions immediately. He was inspired by Blue's lecture. He was likewise addicted to music. He was as driven as they come, a guitarist himself. Oh, and he wanted to be Blue's intern. Delson was certainly forward. You couldn't discount his ability to seize every opportunity possible. Plus, he reminded Blue a little too much of himself at that age. So it was settled. Brad Delson would be his new intern. The pair shook hands. Then Delson pointed at the various music posters splayed across the walls and said, I'm going to create a band that blows them all away. You'll see. Blue laughed. He'd never heard of an internship-turned-record deal before. Over the following months, Delson spent countless hours with Blue, organizing CDs, talking music history, and fielding impromptu pop quizzes on the nuances between A&R and publishing. But the biggest portion of their time together was spent poring over the stacks of demos Blue was handed each morning as he walked into the office, always hoping to spot a diamond in the rough. One morning, Delson handed Blue a cassette tape he was really excited about. The band was called Zero, spelt X-E-R-O. Blue had never heard of them, but he tossed in the tape. They were an all-male rock rap group. The cassette didn't include song titles. The writing lacked character, and it desperately needed a hook. Also, he didn't think the lead singer's voice was very distinctive. After a few songs, an eager Delson said, Well, what did you think? 
Upon further reflection, Blue said some of the harmonics were, quote, tasty. The rapper was undeniably talented, and he thought the guitar was killer. But he was starting to get the distinct feeling Delson's keen investment in this particular tape wasn't just because he, too, enjoyed the tasty harmonics. He started suspecting maybe this wasn't just another cassette from the pile. This one was Delson's band. Delson confessed. It was his band. He was looking for honest, unbiased feedback, and he trusted Blue's ear. Delson took the criticism well and made notes. He was creative, yet diplomatic, something Blue says was rare in an artist. So he decided to offer to come hear Zero play sometime. If anything, just to provide helpful feedback. Delson said they hadn't booked their first gig yet, but if they ever did, he'd let him know. Zero was made up of three childhood friends from the Santa Monica Mountains. Rapper and keyboardist Mike Shinoda, drummer Rob Burden, and guitarist Brad Delson. After high school, they added three more bandmates to their group. Bassist Dave Farrell, DJ Joseph Hahn, and singer Mark Wakefield. Six guys who together made Zero. Most of their songs were written in Shinoda's parents' basement. Between the six of them, they waited tables, worked at bowling alleys, and became bouncers at local music clubs. Han and Shinoda were the creatives, illustrating potential album covers and logos, where Delson and Burden handled the group's finances. They had a four-track recorder, a tiny amp, and a whole lot of ambition. They'd spent the last few years mailing their demo tapes to anyone with a fixed address. Not long after Blue's first introduction to Zero, Delson came back with a new and improved cassette tape. This time, it followed all the criteria he now knew Blue looked for in a demo. It had no more than five songs. The strongest songs were first. Each was cohesive, yet unique, and it was raw, unembellished, just good music. It showed a lot of improvement, and Blue was impressed. Then, on Friday, November 14, 1997, Zero booked their very first show, and Delson couldn't wait to share the news. He wandered into Blue's office and slapped the flyer down onto his desk with a huge grin on his face. Unfortunately, as Blue tells the story in his book, he had a date that night, so he told Delson he'd have to catch the next one. Delson was disappointed. But come the 14th, Blue wished him luck, then watched out his office window as Delson made his way down Sunset Boulevard to the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and started unloading his gear. And suddenly, Blue realized he felt really guilty. The Whiskey was the very club his own band had never been able to book back in the day. The very club he'd spent hundreds of hours reviewing groups for Billboard or watching showcases for Zomba. It had a storied history, and something told Blue to go. So he rescheduled his date and made his way down the street to the club. A minute into Zero's set, 
Blue says the group was energetic, clearly having fun up there. He stood by his assessment of the rapper Mike Shinoda. He really was engaging. They were putting their heart and soul into this performance. But by minute two, Blue looked around the room. Besides the sight of baggy jeans and tattoos, he noticed people started drifting. Their gaze turned from the band to each other. So Blue took his cocktail napkin and his trusty pen and started scribbling down a few thoughts. Awkward stage presence doesn't connect with audience, vocals off-key. But, and he circled it twice, they had potential. A fellow industry executive happened to be standing next to him. He saw Blue take down a few notes and said, You're taking notes on this band? You forgot to write down, they sucked. I wouldn't waste your time on these guys. Zero aptly describes them. After the show, Blue met the rest of the band. He liked them. They asked intelligent, confident questions and were receptive to his input. So Blue decided, after only their first show and meeting them only for the first time, he wanted to sign them. The corner offices held the ultimate signing power, and he knew pitching his intern wouldn't be the compelling case he hoped it would. So he decided to let the music speak for itself. But he had a plan to sweeten the deal by making it the cheapest offer the publishing company had ever made a $4,000 advance. For reference, he'd just done a deal with another artist for half a million dollars. So he faxed the proposal to Zomba HQ in New York City, along with a demo tape by mail. And he waited by the phone. The following morning, Blue got a call from Zomba HQ. His boss felt the need to clarify. He said, So you want to sign a deal with your intern who's only played one show? That was correct. His boss said he listened to the tape with a few colleagues. He liked it, but no one else in the room thought they were anything special. True to form, Blue then went for the Hail Mary. He told his boss that if he didn't get zero off the ground in one year, Zomba could take the $4,000 advance out of his salary. So it was virtually risk-free for the company. Two days later, a formal offer was faxed to Blue from New York, and the whole band was invited into the offices to sign on the dotted line. Blue says he commemorated the moment by buying a pair of Levi's jeans two sizes too big, so he'd fit in with the group. And just like that, Delson went from Blue's intern to his newest client. Blue decided to hit the ground running with Zero. They'd need a professional demo to send to record labels, meaning they'd need a good producer to help them make one. Blue sent Zero's original demo to six top rock producers and promptly received six top rock rejections. So he persuaded Macy Gray's producer to do him a favor, to come over to the studio and help them put together something presentable. It was a rocky session. The band had never seen Pro Tools recording software before. 
they were shy about performing in front of the producer, and they weren't yet clear on who to look to as band leader. Blue invited every label he could think of to come see Zero at their rehearsal space, but he says the reaction was dismal. Only one executive bothered to give feedback. He said the lead singer, Mark Wakefield, was pitchy. Blue booked them other small gigs up Sunset Boulevard, but every time, A&R executives passed, usually walking out by the third song. When Blue pressed them for feedback, it was always the same. They had an interesting sound, but the vocals needed work. One night, they booked a gig playing at a UCLA frat party, and Blue invited a friend of his who worked in radio promotion to come give his honest opinion. Within four minutes, that friend turned to Blue and said, Oof, your band just cleared a party with a free keg. That's hard to do. The following months were met with unreturned phone calls, uneventful record label meetings, and failed showcases. Mike Shinoda said it felt like they'd auditioned for every single label, and every single one turned them down. Han started to wonder if they were doing something wrong. Then, the phone rang. It was an executive from Reprise Warner. He said if Blue set up a showcase, he, along with a colleague, would be willing to come see Zero perform. So over the next few days, the band rehearsed their hearts out. They listened intently to Blue's direction, then told him they were confident they could crush the showcase. Blue made sure they knew this showcase was a big deal. These a guys from Reprise Warner had the power to sign any band they liked on the spot, like they did with artists like The Bangles, Sublime, and Sugar Ray. Blue told the band to play like their lives depended on it. The next night, it was showtime, and Blue says Zero left their blood, sweat, and tears on that stage. But after their final song, the executives turned to Blue and said, There's no real star here. I just don't see what you see. They shook his hand and walked out the door. Blue wandered over to the sweat-drenched band with hopeful looks on their faces, and he gave them the bad news. He said it was the all-too-familiar sting of rejection. Blue walked back to his office and slumped over in his chair. Then his desk phone rang yet again. It was the president and CEO of Geffen Records. The CEO of Geffen Records invited Blue over to their offices. He was surprised since they hadn't seen Zero play or, even to his knowledge, heard their demo. But that afternoon, Blue walked up Sunset to Geffen, eager to hear what they had to say. They told Blue they were fans of his work. In particular, they said they'd missed the boat on Macy Gray and were impressed by how quickly he spotted her talent. And with his keen ear, they wondered who else he was looking at these days. If you could sign anyone right now, who would it be? So Blue pulled Zero's demo out of his jacket pocket and passed it across the table. 
they popped it into the CD player and listened in silence. Blue says he gripped the sides of his chair and braced himself for the, quote, oncoming impact of rejection and the inevitable sound of the eject button. But instead, when the demo reached its last note, they simply asked Blue what he thought made this group stand out. Blue said their lyrical abilities were head and shoulders above the other rap rock bands on the radio these days. The group's DJ wasn't just a piece of furniture on stage, but actually an essential instrument. The rapper's lyrics were cinematic, not just about money or women, but about internal human struggles. He said Zero is a thinking person's band. They're artists who run the band like a business. Then he made his final pitch. He said, these guys aren't going to get drunk and destroy a hotel room. They're the ones who will end up owning the hotel. The Geffen executives listened carefully, then said they'd discuss it and get back to him. A short while later, Blue's phone rang again. It was the head of A&R at Geffen. He said, meet me at Dantana's on Santa Monica. Sitting across from the Geffen executive, Blue could only pretend to enjoy his steak for so long before he finally blurted out the question. So what did you think of the Zero demo? He said he liked it. A lot. Granted, they're young and inexperienced, but they just needed a good A&R person who saw the vision. A moment of silence hung over the table that felt like an eternity. It wasn't exactly a definitive statement. Did they want to take Zero on? But that's when the exec continued. So, we were not only impressed by the demo, but impressed by you. We'd like to offer you a position in our A&R department, and we'd be willing to have you make Zero your first signed band. Blue couldn't contain his excitement. Geffen, Geffen, the very label that had brought 22-year-old Blue into their office to offer him a recording contract, then just as quickly take it all away. The place that had ignited his dream to become an A&R person in the first place was offering him his dream job and was willing to take Zero on as a package deal. He could not believe it. Then some semblance of clarity made its way back into his head. He said, wait, don't you need to see the band play first? They said no. After Macy Gray, they trusted his judgment. First, they'd sign Blue. Then, they'd get the papers in order for Zero. The next morning, Blue called Delson and requested Zero come into his office for an urgent meeting. One by one, each member of Zero filed into Blue's office, and he told them the good news. They were ecstatic. They were getting a record deal, and Blue would be their liaison with the label. It was unbelievable. But just as quickly as they burst into celebration, they started getting ideas. Mike Shinoda, the band's rapper, wondered if this offer could start buzz with other labels, maybe even getting them a bigger signing bonus somewhere else. 
Then other members of the band started piping up, suggesting maybe they put on a big showcase and invite all record labels at once to come see them play. They knew they had something special, and they wanted to get it in front of industry decision-makers. But Blue urged them not to do this. He said there was a whole psychology behind showcasing. If you invited too many people at once, there was a big crowd of reactions for executives to gauge. If it was good, it was good. But if it was negative or even lukewarm, it was a no-go. And word would spread across the entire room, and thus across the entire industry, that you were tainted. The music biz was notoriously unforgiving. Plus, with Geffen already putting an offer on the table sight unseen, a bad showcase could spook them. Blue brought some of his colleagues into the room to try and explain to the band why it was far too risky a decision. But the band insisted. And on September 10th, 1998, Zero booked a public showcase at the Whiskey A Go-Go and invited every executive in town. Blue was terrified. He didn't think the band was ready to handle this kind of exposure. They'd never done a successful showcase, and word around town was Geffen wasn't happy their offer was being shopped around. At 8 p.m., on the empty whiskey floor, Blue paced back and forth, jittery. This was it, their make-or-break moment. Everything was on the line. The band, their deal, and Blue's reputation. By 8.45, executives and their notebooks started trickling in. Blue said, here we go. next episode, we find out exactly what happens on stage at Zero's showcase. A key player in the story is fired, and the band is forced to change their name. Tune in next week for Rejecting Linkin Park, Part 2. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. We regret to inform you, our producer is Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. The major source for this episode is One Step Closer by Jeff Blue. Follow us on social at Apostrophe Pod. If you like this episode, you may also like Rejecting Lady Gaga from Season 1. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.